Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Liberty and the Law, the podcast series that examines the critical elements of a strong legal defense in criminal cases. Join respected attorney James Dore for this lively discussion on the rights of criminal defendants and the important role defense attorneys play in our legal system. For the past few years, uh, we've been conducting interviews with Lavelle Law Attorney James Dore on Liberty and the Law, and uh, taking pride in the fact that sometimes we discuss very recent cases coming out of the state or federal courts. Um, we try and stay right on top of things. Hi, everybody. This is Jim Mitchell, and Mr. Dore and I have had discussions on court rulings that, in some cases, you know, were handed down just a week or two prior to our discussion. Uh, today, we're going to be a little less relevant in terms of current news, but. Quite frankly, um, as we reach back into what many consider to be the most important case in U.S. judicial history, um, there is relevance for today. We're going to talk about Marbury versus Madison. James, are you you ready to take us back to 1803 on this one? I think we're, we're ready to dive in, and it shows that even an old case, even from 1803, is still relevant to today and in the, in the current battles going on with the Supreme Court and you know the politics involved in it. We're, we're uh, they go back to our founding. This this is a, the, the Supreme Court case that, like I said, from 1803, um, that illustrates some of these partisan battles early on. Yeah. Well, and, you know, if you're a history buff, you've read books on early American history, or gosh, even you've seen the musical Hamilton, you you know the names like Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. They, they were all part of this case, uh, along with Madison and Marbury. Um, can you kind of tell us what the question was at hand that was presented to the court in this case? Well, we need to do a little bit of background to get into the question. But what had happened was in the election of 1800, John Adams, John Adams was defeated by Thomas Jefferson. Before John Adams left office, uh, Congress in, in, uh, had enacted a Judiciary Act of 1801, and Adams had uh, appointed and uh, several judges, I think uh, 16 circuit court judges and 14 justices of the peace that were confirmed by the Senate. Um, and so there was a, there's, uh, a confirmation of the judges and the Secretary of State at the time, which was, was uh, John Marshall, had certified all these. But the problem is not all of these commissions were delivered to the appointees. So mm-hmm. when Thomas Jefferson took office, he ordered his new Secretary of State, James Madison, not to deliver the ones that weren't delivered yet. So he, he thought, well, they're no, no avoid at this point. So that kind of is the, the underpinnings of this case. And one of the just or one of the the, the men's appointments was was uh, was Marbury. Uh, his name was uh, William Marbury, and he had sued uh, directly the Supreme Court for a writ of mandamus, or he's asking the, for an order from court or writ mandating the executive branch, in this case Thomas Jefferson to deliver his, his appointment. And that's kind of how this got into the court, directly through this uh, Judiciary Act. Now, well, there's so many different angles I want to approach this from, so I'm, I'm going to throw a few questions your way, and I'll let you guide us as to how deep you want to go, uh, how quickly in, in terms of some of this. But um, you know, certainly you've already indicated that this is a great case because it brings in uh, all three branches of the government and uh, starts to look at how they interact. Is that is that one of the critical parts that makes this such an important ruling in our history, is that it, it uh, involved all branches of the government and their roles? Absolutely, Jim. It, it, it involved the checks and balances of the, of the, of the three branches of government, and it really it, it, it 
it gave a little bit of teeth to the judiciary. We've had a role that, you know, is, as we said at the time, they, they don't have power over the sword. That was the executive. They don't have power over the purse or the money. That was Congress. Mm-hmm. They had some kind of unspecified, you know, power. And this gave a little teeth to the power in that, um, you know, acts by Congress that were in violation of the Constitution could be declared null and void or unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. It gave them a little bit of heft, a little bit of power here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, it, and it fleshed out the power of the branches. There's competition between the branches. And each branch is supposed to kind of selfishly guard their own power. And this sure. is one of, the, one of those instances where um, Marshall and his wisdom had, you know, wrote this decision to express that power, you know, in, well, expressly in, in the decision. Well, you, you mentioned the Constitution, which comes up in our conversations on a, on a regular basis. Um, going back to 1803, um, I, I might have to assume a little bit that at that point, some people still consider that something of a speculative document um, as opposed to the overriding law of the land. Was this a case that sort of established the strength of the Constitution itself as well? It established quite that. And, it, you know, keep in mind that the Constitution was ratified 1787. So this was this was new. And there were acts of Congress that were new at the time, that did, um, fleshing out some of the, 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 the some of the powers belonging to the branches. And this 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 case specifically ruled that the Supreme that the Constitution wasn't just a you know, statement of ideals. It, it is law of the land. It is expressly law of the land. It's a foundational law. And acts of Congress in violation of that law are unconstitutional, and they are null and void. So, yeah, it, it established that the Constitution was uh, is a law of the land, and the Supreme Court is, a, is the guardian of that Constitution. The law is what the Supreme Court says it is. And that's all it comes down to this decision. And, and was this the first real test of that system of checks and balances? Uh, yeah, I would say so. It was the first, uh, in, a, in a judicial sense, uh, it was the first chance for the judiciary to kind of flex its muscles. And uh, they had a chief justice at the time who was willing to do that, and John Marshall. So they had a, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, it, it kind of came all came together with, with this decision. Um, and it, you know, it, it didn't necessarily have to be ruled on upon, you know, it, as it was. I mean, you know, they uh, could have simply ruled as the court that Marbury didn't have a right to his commission, but they established that he did. They could have mm-hmm. ruled that. There was no remedy for this, the court there, but they ruled, well, there was a remedy. They ruled that where there is a right, there is a remedy. So they, they ruled that that was, you know, that there was, there was a cause there and, and, and something that should be rectified. But they ruled that the Supreme Court is not the proper venue because in the Judiciary Act, the Congress had expanded the uh, original jurisdiction of the court. And, they, and the court, in, in, in allowing this kind of a... a um, act to be filed directly with them instead of going through the lower courts and through the appellate system, this was something they expanded the original jurisdiction of the court. So, you know, I know we talked about does this limit the, the power of the, of the Supreme Court? Well, yeah, a little bit, right? But in uh-huh. Nolan, what they really were doing is they were saying, no, you cannot touch our original jurisdiction. That is in the Constitution and Congress by simple act cannot do that. You need you know, a constitutional amendment would be the proper way to, if you're going to touch that original jurisdiction at all. So they, they flex their muscles and say, no, not, not on our watch. This is, 
this is um, this is a lot of land, and this is what we're going to follow. Um, yeah, boy, a few things that I, w- I want to follow up on, some to reinforce and some to go a little further. We're talking to James Dore, a criminal defense attorney, and always a strong advocate for the rights of the individual. He, he joins me each month here on Liberty and the Law to discuss various aspects of the judicial system. And today we're discussing the landmark ruling in 1803 in Marbury versus Madison, a case that most consider to be the most significant in the history of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, James is sharing his information, as he does when he writes articles, creates videos, and um, in our very robust library of podcasts, all that can be found at uh, LavelleLaw.com. Um, and, and I want to go back because you, you mentioned it there. Early in the podcast, you said that it sort of flexed the muscle that established the, the strength, uh, the role of the Supreme Court. But I, I think I just heard you say, too, just to clarify, didn't Chief Justice Marshall sort of limit the power of the Supreme Court in some ways in, in the way this was written as well? Well, we limited the ability to hear this as, as, a, uh, as an action filed directly with the court. So yeah, okay. The, the the purpose of the Judiciary Act was to expand the original jurisdiction, and saying they cannot expand it, not only did they at the same time they were they were, um, you know, uh, holding the Constitution as inviolate, so they cannot uh, uh, touch the original jurisdiction of the court. So they have limited to hear this case in this particular circumstance, but in in reality they were they were. Saying this is our, you know, our original jurisdiction cannot be touched like this. Now, um, there's a couple of other documents and things that are affected in this, and, and I want to try and squeeze those in. And one of them you just mentioned in in his uh, writing, Chief Justice Marshall referenced a centuries-old Roman legal maxim, and, and you just said it: where there's a legal right, there's a legal remedy. Um, you and I have discussed this in the past. It, it's not uncommon in in our history to to reach back, you know centuries sometimes for a for a guiding legal principle and this this was a great example of that right and, it, and it, it's very and the foundations and we talk about the common law and anglo-american common law and this, this principles that go back beyond or before our constitution is it, the legal guiding principles but part of this decision and we just talked about you know individual simple liberty liber, yeah, let me start again individual civil <laughs> liberties and how important that is and part of the ruling was and they only quoted here the very essence of civil liberty certainly consists in the right of every individual to claim the protection of the laws whenever he receives an injury. So the, the court is upholding that principle that the, the, where there's an injury, there, there is a remedy. That there, where there's a violation of a, a civil liberty, there's a remedy in the court. Just not in this particular case in these circumstances. The, the, the justice was, justices were unwilling to order the, the chief executive to to, to man, you know, issue the by way of a writ of mandate, you know, to to, to um, issue the commission, but so there was a little bit of balance of power, uh, uh, unwillingness maybe to take on the chief executive at the time, you know, because there, like we talked about at the beginning, that this is uh, uh, one administration trying to leave behind some baggage for the incoming mm-hmm. administration, trying to appoint a lot of pro federalist judges, uh, and that would have been the Adams or the you know the Federalist wing, and on the Thomas Jefferson wing, the, the Democratic Republicans, you know, they, 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 the Adams is trying to saddle them with, with these judges. So there was, sure. there was that kind of, you know, trying to, to, trying to affect the incoming administration. So it's political there. Um, and it, it just, you know, it shows that even back at the founding, there wasn't this, this harmony between everybody, that these political fights are being drained into our system, you know, and in the, the proper way uh, to flesh these, these, these fights are, 
out our, in, into the system of courts and through petitioning Congress for laws, petitioning the chief executive, you know, for, for them to exercise their political powers. So there's you know, the balance of powers uh, and, and that, how that plays out with these different political parties. It, it goes way back to our founding. It, it's, it's, always, it's always been with us. Mm-hmm. Now, how much uh, impact did this case have on the courts going forward in terms of rulings that they would make and the precedent this set, and not only just the power of the court, but um, uh, some of the other rulings that might have followed? I assume that this became a basis for a lot of uh, uh, rulings in the years that followed. Well, the one statement that's famously quoted out of here is, and let me quote this, it's emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Now, that, that statement there, that the, 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 the judiciary says what the law is. Now, when there's a clear violation of the Constitution, it is a duty to step up and strike down laws. But sometimes there's been abuse by the courts in this, um, and, it, and you know, there's been some political involvement. So the, the effects of this case in what's called judicial review, the power to review these acts, of the, of the Congress or even the chief executive and strike down those unconstitutional acts. That, that, that's a very powerful uh, um, uh, statement by the judiciary in exercising their power. But like any, any power that say the chief executive or Congress, they can carry it too far. So the checks and balances have to be there. Um, if the court strikes down an act and, and uh, the public is, is uh, concerned by that, they can always petition their, their uh, Congress people to pass a law, and the, and the chief executive would sign that, um, you know, to limit those powers or to expressly state uh, what the law is. So this, um, this, this does expand the fight a little bit, but it puts the Supreme Court right at the square of a lot of uh, big fights that have uh, been uh, uh, with us, you know, uh, um, that have, the, the acts that have uh, come in front of Congress or come in front of the court. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, so... A fascinating look at where we are today, and uh, especially when you look back over 200 years to see where this all started. So uh, I think, uh, James, what we'll let you do is go for today as we wrap things up here, but I think we have more conversation to have around this and and maybe uh, look uh, in the near future here at uh, some of the things happening today and uh, the role of the Supreme Court uh, in our lives. So I appreciate your time today. As always, great to speak with you, and thank everyone for listening. Uh, Again, if you want to Dig in a little bit deeper, um, LavelleLaw.com is a place that uh, a lot of articles are saved as well as podcasts, and you can always call James directly at 847-705-7555. They'll put you in touch with him, and uh, you can uh, certainly get more of his expertise in discussions on criminal defense. Thanks for listening.